How's it going, everyone? Thank you so much for tuning in to episode two of Authors on a Podcast Talking Books. Today, I have fantasy author Angus Watson uh, coming to talk about uh, his past trilogy, uh, Age of Iron, and then also uh, we're going to be talking about his West of West trilogy, which the third book in that trilogy comes out uh, actually just next week. It's called Where God's Fear to Go. Uh, but without further ado, uh, Mr. Angus Watson. Uh, hi, David. How's it going? Uh, going pretty great. How about you? Good. All right. Thanks very much. Good, good. Uh, I know we had a few technical difficulties getting on here, but I'm glad we were able to get back in sync and get on with, with good old Skype. So, Yeah, good stuff. Good. Well, uh, well, first of all, you know, again, thanks for coming on. Uh, what, um, just kind of first off, uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, you know, what you what you write, uh, what you do besides writing, like in your spare time. Um, yeah, well, I write books. I write. Uh, so far, I've written uh, five books published. One coming out next week, as you said. Uh, those six are split into two trilogies, which are both. Um, epic historical fantasy fiction. Um, right now, I'm actually writing a Western thriller, uh, just because I just I just can't embark on another three year fantasy trilogy right now. Um, but I am planning one as I write the other book. Um, in spare time, I have a uh, three year old and a six year old son, so I don't have a huge amount of spare time. But I used to do things like photography and video gaming. But now I, I pretty much write and um, do things like build bunk beds and play with my children. <laughs> I got you. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I saw a video not too long ago about your uh, your shuttle launch. Uh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, down in the New Forest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 kept, uh, I kept expecting, you know, uh, I think your wife was going over to, to, to check it out, and I kept expecting it just to kind of pop off. And uh, fortu fortunately, she wasn't hit in the head when that was happening because no, you never know no. with those pressurized rockets. So Yeah, and it is made of foam rubber, and it went about 10 feet in the air. So <laughs> I think we're really okay to be hit by it. Hey, as long, as, long yeah. as the kids are happy, right? Exactly. <laughs> as long as they sleep, that's much yeah. <laughs> I can believe yeah, so um, so I haven't actually had a chance to read um, your first trilogy, the Iron Age trilogy, um, because that kind of came in, I guess, a little a little late in the game as far as uh, Orbit Publishing and so forth. So, I, actually, my first book by you was uh, uh, "You Die When You Die," um, mm -hmm. and so can you tell us a little about a little bit about the Iron Age trilogy for those who haven't read it? Um, yeah, well, it's it's. Uh, similarly to You Die When You Die in those three, it is epic historical fantasy fiction. It is, um, you know, it's it's called grimdark, but it's not it's not that grim, it's not that dark. Um, it's kind of humorous. Um, and it is based on uh, Caesar's, it's, it's called Age of Iron because it was set in the Iron Age, in the British Iron Age, right at the end when Caesar invaded in 55 and 54 BC. Um, so it sort of it tells, us, tells that story from the British point of view. And it has a, you know, a reluctant hero, a magical child, a kick-ass female warrior. So, you know, it's fairly standard fantasy stuff, but obviously brilliantly written and very interesting. There you go. Uh, and you actually were uh, shortlisted for the, the David Gimmel Morningstar Award for, uh, for Best debut Fantasy Fiction Novel for that, right? I was shortlisted for it. I didn't win it, which, um, you know, you always see people who win awards and go, my God, it's so humbling to win this award. It's much more humbling not to win an award. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
so yeah, yeah, yeah. So I did win that, but um, but I was up for it, so that's nice. Yeah. So uh, so when you when you first shopped around uh, that trilogy, was was Orbit like top of the list? I mean, did you send it out to a ton of publishers, or did they were they the only ones that came back, or did you have a few that that reached out to you about it? Um, my agent did all that. Okay. And I ended up going to see two publishers. I can't. Random House was the other one. Um, but uh, yeah, no. I mean, there was no multi-million pound bidding war for it. Right. <laughs> but they did give me quite a decent advance, and I think my agent did a good job there. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, you know, Orbit, at least for the past few years, in my opinion, has, has probably been the best as far as fantasy and science fiction, especially with you know debut authors, seasoned authors. I mean, they're just pushing books left and right, and I don't really think, I mean, besides maybe one or two, I mean, in that length of time have been what I would consider not really a dud, but just not my, my taste or my style. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, you know, I look at any fantasy writer now and go, man, you know, if you go through orbit, you know, you're going to get a great cover. You're going to get great, you know, uh, blurbs. And I mean, they're going to push your book as, as much as possible. And especially getting it into, you know, reviewers like, like myself and our hands to, to get it out to the masses. So. Yeah. I mean, they're very good and very useful. Um, it's great to have a publisher. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, having said that, I mean, I've met a lot of people who self-publish, and I think that is, that is definitely a viable channel these days and something I might look into. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, especially, uh, you know, now with Mark Lawrence's uh, self-published blog off, I mean, you know, they're you know doing that every year now. I think, were they in year seven or eight now uh, in doing that? And, I mean, you're getting a lot of, a lot of recognition as, as indie, you know, writers doing that. I know Rob Hayes, I think is now in the finals again, and he won a couple of years ago. Uh, but, you know, it's gotten to a point where indie publishing is, you know, almost just as good as traditionally published, you know, it's obviously not getting the advances and stuff like that, but the writing is there. Yeah, I think so. And I think especially with um, audio books of seeing a big indie publishing boom, I think um, I certainly met an author who just sold his book, Sold an audiobook for a million dollars somehow through it himself. I'm not quite sure how it all works, but wow, it sounded like, sounded good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. Um, you know, there have been there have been a few people that uh, I guess somehow somehow through Audible get you know Audible to kind of release all of their audiobooks, even with indie publishing. I know uh, Nick Cole and Jason Anspach have a series called Galaxy's Edge, which I think they have yep. RC Bray doing all their audiobooks, um, but they still published all their books. Um, yeah. and yet they get, you know, one of the best narrators in the business to do their audio. Um, yeah. but then, uh, you know, I, I know a lot of people also go through, I think it's ACX, which is you basically just kind of put your book out there and you kind of interview narrators and pick the best one and then release an audio book. <laughs> yeah, I think it's exciting. I think we are going to see probably a decline of the full size publishing houses. Um, and I think what we might see is an increase in sort of, uh, medium level middlemen who or, or women of course who arrange the marketing and um you know deal with things that writers aren't necessarily so good at yeah yeah absolutely um so prior to writing uh what what did you do as far as a career uh did you you know go to university stuff like that uh tell me a little bit about your life prior to writing yeah uh after school i backpacked around the world around india and Thailand on my own because the guy I was going to come with backed out at the last minute. So I headed off. So that was quite sort of character building. That's quite interesting. 
because um, there was no, you know, uh, no internet or hardly any telephones in those days. Um, and uh, yeah, then I went to university where I studied geography. I went to university in Bristol in the west of England, um, and then left Bristol and did a point as sort of eight years or so working in a bank in London. Uh, during that time, I spent a year in Australia, during which time I said I'd never work in a bank again. I came back to London and started working in a bank again. Um, and then when I was about 30, it was my grandfather's funeral. And um, when I came out, I had a message from my boss saying, we're offering voluntary redundancy. And I thought, life is too short. I'm going to take it. I'm going to do what I always wanted to do, which was write. So I got a good redundancy package from the bank and spent a year writing a book. And that was just terrible. Um, it was a really, really bad book, and I couldn't get it published because it was awful. So I took a course in feature writing, which is writing the articles for newspapers that aren't news, sort of things like interviews and stories about, you know, guinea pigs or whatever. Um, and, yeah, and then within months, I was writing for all the, well, within about a month of starting, I'd written for all the major British newspapers as a freelance. Uh, so I started doing that, and I wrote mostly for The Telegraph and The Financial Times, uh, this lasted about 10 years and I did groovy things like I'd spend a day you know, in a sea lion and seal sanctuary looking after them or um, I'd go visit otters or I'd go for a walk or I'd cycle from you know, one city in England to another. Um, and I used to be a lot of celebrities and uh, wrote sort of product reviews and got loads of freebies. So I spent 10 years having a really nice time as a freelance features writer. Um, and then, yeah, that really dried up. And I started writing novels in about 2014. Okay, yeah, and I and I see in uh, in your your blurb it says that you also uh, looked for Bigfoot in the U.S. I did, yeah. Um, I came to Seattle and out to the Olympic National Park and spent about five days with a Bigfoot research organization uh, looking for Bigfoot or Bigfoots, as it is, because as we all know, it's not a single animal that would be nuts. It's a species of uh, a giant bipedal ape living living in America. Can you delve a little bit more into that? Obviously, we've seen you know shows on uh, History Channel and stuff like that. Um, you know, in regard to a single Bigfoot, but how how exactly was a day to day looking for Bigfoots or Big Feet? Uh, I think Bigfoots is, is accepted plural. So oh, okay, the BFRO, the Bigfoot Search Organization. Um, <laughs> Well, basically, when we went out at night with uh, there was a, a professor or a doc. I think she was a doctor from the University of Los Angeles, uh, and she had loads of recording equipment. And so we sat there and we tried to lure the Bigfoot by singing to it. It apparently enjoyed the call of women singing. Um, and you know, a few people saw one. Um, I didn't, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but it was really fun. And and there is, I mean, there are really strong arguments for the existence of, of Bigfoot. They um. You know, a lot of Native American groups think that it's as real as bears. A lot of people, a lot of um, people have seen one and say pretty much the same thing. And a lot of these people are, you know, policemen and lawyers, they're respectable people. <laughs> and uh, these forests really are impenetrable. I mean, the Olympic National Park, you can hardly walk off a park a path because the scrub is so deep. And heat sensing equipment can't penetrate it at all. You can't find an animal in there. So if you accept that these um, apes are very, very clever and capable of hiding from people and you decide that perhaps they are descendants of the ape Gigantopithecus, which lived in China about 30,000 years ago and came across the Siberian road, uh, land bridge 
during the last ice age, then, you know, maybe there is a giant ape hiding out in North America. I mean, it's worth looking into, right? Yeah, 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 definitely. Definitely. I'm, I'm not ruling it out. I mean, I mean you know, <laughs> I, like, I like the idea that weird things come to yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, th- there's constantly, you know, stuff about UFOs and, you know, mole men and crab people and all that stuff. Yeah. So, you know, so, something has to, you know, something has to be there, whether it's what we picture or imagine or, you know, what's on the next Jack Link's beef jerky commercial. <laughs> yeah, I, I like it. I mean, the, the, a new species of ox was found in 1992. So that's, um, you know, a big animal that hit out quite well. Having said that, it was discovered in Vietnam, which what, what that means is that white people found it. It had already been there and people knew about it. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you know, you, you, you always see articles about, uh, you know, fishermen off the coast of Asia, you know, find some crazy-looking fish at, you know, 10,000 feet underwater, and, yeah. you know, they just dredge them up, and you're like, okay, that's the first time I've ever seen something like that. So what else, what are the weird <laughs> yeah. things are going to be under there? Yeah, yeah, I very much like that idea. I, I like the idea that Megalodon, the uh, supergiant shark, still survives, um, it, which has been recently fe- featured in The Meg. The Meg, yeah. You know, you know, know, you know Jason Statham movie. Yeah, about to say, you know, I, Jason Statham movies tend to be pretty corny. I mean, I, I was I was big on Transporter when it came out, and then when Crank mm. came out, like, I, I had to watch every movie he was in, and I actually loved The Meg. Like, it, 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 it knew it was it was crazy and funny and ridiculous, but like it it didn't. I don't, in my opinion, didn't go over the top. But uh, you know, seeing Dwight from The Office killed was was pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think we've ever seen a bad Jason Statham film. No, he's an excellent, he's an excellent actor. He's a, he's a great ambassador for the nation. Yeah, and I mean, and his movies are always entertaining. I mean, they're usually exactly. you know usually thrilling and high action and high octane. So. Yeah, without him taking himself too seriously. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, all right, so so we talked a little bit about the Iron Age trilogy. So I want to talk a little bit about West of West. So uh, like I said, it was actually probably one of my first books I requested from Orbit when I started reviewing, uh, simply based on the title and the cover. Um, and then you know I found out it was about Vikings. And I was huge into the TV show Vikings. So I was like, let's go. And then started reading it. And I mean, I was just enamored. I mean, it, the, the names, I mean, you've got Finn Boggy, the Boggy, Teary Tree Legs, Wolf the Fat, Sasa Lip Chewer. I mean, and they're called Mushroom Men and they live in a town called Hard Work. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's just, it's immensely fun. Uh, but tell me a little bit about how you came up with uh, that that storyline um, and the original character names um, and I guess uh, you know where it originated from. Uh, well, I mean, the idea really originated for me wanting to spend time driving across the USA because um, I just I mean I really love the my favorite bit is the Great Basin Desert and the Rockies and you know sort of Utah, Colorado, um, as far as California, Nevada. I love it around there. And I wanted an excuse to go and walk around with a dictaphone and pop my book. Uh, but I thought I'd better start a bit further away. So I thought I'd start with somewhere the Vikings could realistically have got to, even though the book isn't meant to be realistic at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started off in Chicago and um, 
drove across Great Plains, which, my God, I, I was expecting to think, find the Great Plains like, really soulful and amazing, but actually they were just dull as hell because all the small farms are gone and it's just one great big outdoor factory with no, not even any roadkill. Um, so I soon realized I had to get my characters across there quite quickly, so I came up with a device to do that. Um, and, yeah, so, so the story just came from, from actually from traveling, and then the characters, all the names are pretty much stolen directly from Viking sagas. Um, I say stolen, I mean um, influenced, <laughs> um, you know, inspired by. Um, and then I found an old diary I'd uh, written when I was backpacking, uh, as I've mentioned, when I was 19. And the character Finn Boggy is based on that because I was, I was, I was a real idiot. <laughs> and, but, 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 you know, with a good heart. And um, I think that's what Finn Boggy is all about. Yeah, and, and being scared of women. <laughs> Terrified of women. <laughs> well, well picked up. Yeah, because he loves women, but he's very frightened of them, and they are much cooler than him. Right, right. Um, and then, uh, of course, you have the, I'm probably going to pronounce it wrong, the Ausla. Uh, yeah, no, that's right. That's and right. and where, where did they, uh, I guess, come from? Was that based on something in, I guess, Viking history? Uh. No, not really, because they're, they're more on the Native American side, although okay. I'm not allowed to say that officially because, um, you know, people can be sensitive about these things. Right. Uh, but I should point out it's completely fantastical and made up and not based on any particular tribe. Um, but no, I mean, they, they were really, I think, uh, to add to the story, I think that's, you know, they're, uh, they're an exciting group to have chasing, chasing our heroes in the first book. And uh, the name Ausler is also inspired directly from the book Watership Down, uh, which I think is an excellent book that everyone should read. And I did that kind of as a homage to that book. Okay, and yeah. Richard Adams, the writer. Okay, yeah. And, and that's, you know, one that I think a lot of people read in, in high school were, you know, in the yeah. States. Um, not one that I was required to read. I mean, I think instead of that, we read The Green Mile by Stephen King, So, which I was okay with. It's a fantastic novel. But, yeah. uh, you know, Watership Down, I think, is it's probably one of those that, like, okay, this has to be on your read list before you die kind of thing. Because I, I know they just, I think, made another, maybe a second movie about it. I know it came out on yeah. Netflix pretty recently. Um, I'm yeah. pretty sure they had one a while back that was maybe animated. But, um Okay. The animated one is, is just harrowing. It's It's got the song Bright Eyes by Art Garfunkel in it, and it's one of the saddest things you'll ever see. Um, I haven't actually seen the other one yet. Okay. But I have. I wrote an article for the FT about Watership Down and went to Watership Down because it's just it's about 60 miles west of where I'm sitting right now. Oh, so wow. So you can sort of walk, walk along the real thing and you know, identify bits from the book. Okay. Wow. Yeah. All right. Um. So kind of, uh, I mean, still talking about books, uh, but not your books at the moment. Uh, have you read anything lately that just kind of wowed you or are there any authors that you're reading now that, uh, you know, you wish more people knew about? Um, I really enjoy, I just listened to Children of Time by Adrian Tchaikovsky, which I thought was excellent. Um, the new Gerard Abercrombie is brilliant, of course, but all his books are brilliant. Um, I'm in a lot of westerns at the moment because I'm writing a kind of western. Um, I'm enjoying Lonesome Dove, which I'm sort of about a quarter of the way into right now. Okay. I love the book The Searchers. It's quite sort of a good old-fashioned western. Um, another good, slightly more literary western, if you want to read one of those, is The Sisters Brothers. Okay. And um, yeah, that's about it, really. And I mean, my 
about my favorite author who I haven't read one for a while because I haven't written for a while. I read everyone as it comes out is Carl Hyerson, another American author who writes uh, Florida crime novels. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Um, and have you read any of those? I have not read any Hyerson. I uh, I have a few on my Kindle, uh, just kind of as they you know come on ebook sale. I'll grab a couple, but I haven't had a chance to read him. But I've heard his his novels are fantastic. Yeah, yeah, they're absolutely great. You should not judge them by the film Strip Tease, which was based on one of his novels. <laughs> it was adapted strongly. I gotcha. So you're actually the – so I, uh, I interviewed uh, Michael Fletcher last week, and he actually brought up Children of Time as well. I mean, that that book is so good. Yeah. Uh, That's annoyingly brilliant. Yeah, right? Um, yeah. yeah. And I, I and think, I, oh, I wish I'd come up with that idea. That's, that's great. That's, yeah. yeah. And I, and I haven't read children of ruin, which just came out earlier this year, but uh, I know I've been meaning to get to it. Um, and then as far as Drew Abercrombie, man, I've had a little hatred on my shelf for months, but see, I didn't actually start reading his first law trilogy till like two months ago. Okay. Well. Because uh, I'm behind the times and I don't listen to anybody when they tell me I need to read something. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's a good, good way to be. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I basically went through the First Law trilogy in about a week and then I haven't come back to the First Law world just because, you know, I, I keep getting like, okay, this book comes out in 2020. Let's go ahead and get it done yeah. and then I can come back to something that's in the past. But. Yeah, Joe, Joe Abercrombie is phenomenal. I mean, every single word he puts on a page is just amazing. Yeah, he's an excellent writer. And actually, I mean, he and Scott Lynch are what got me into fantasy because really? I I wasn't in fantasy at all. I read, you know, Lord of the Rings. And actually, my first first book I loved was Hitchhiker's Guide to Galaxy. Oh, so fun. good. Um, but then I, I, I read sort of quite pretentiously. I read lots of literary stuff. I read lots of Julian Barnes and Martin Amos and all that sort of thing in my 20s, thinking that I was clever. And then my brother, about, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, gave me Joe Abercrombie's and Scott Lynch's first books and said, read these. And I said, I'm not reading your nerd rubbish. <laughs> and um, he said, go on, just try them, try them, you know, try 70 pages of each and, and stop there if you want. Well, all right, give it here. Um, and I was just, I was amazed at how good they were. I thought they were better than pretty much anything I'd ever read. I thought they were clever, funny, harrowing, you know, just, just everything you want a book to be. Yeah, and, and it also helps that, you know, the characters are so enamoring. I mean, Sandan Glockta is probably the best character I've ever read. Yeah. Um, and see, I actually went through the uh, audiobooks. So I listened to Stephen Pacey, which he's done all seven books. I, I guess eight if you include the, the short story anthology. Uh, yeah. And he's a phenomenal narrator. And I don't think they could pick another person to do any Joe Abercrombie book. Um, and see, I and see another thing I haven't read – the uh, gentleman bastard series yet but see it's one of those that like it hasn't continued yet so i feel like i still have time but yeah. i think i think uh he teased earlier this year that the, the fourth book is coming out in 2020 i believe okay. so maybe i'll get to it early next year and i can kind of follow up to the next one but i mean you know at this point everybody's just kind of waiting in the wings like they are for winds of winter and the third uh rothless book and I mean, you just never know. But, you know, I always try to tell people it doesn't matter if the, the series is finished yet. Just read it. And yeah. that's kind of what they yeah. told me with Abercrombie and what they're telling me with Scott Lynch. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. But a lot of people like to hang on to the full, full series, which I appreciate. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, get it all in one fell swoop and you don't have to worry about waiting. But yeah. uh, and, you know, it makes sense. But, you know, if you're one of those people that have read, you know, two out of three and the third one's still 
you know, 10 years out or whatever, yeah. you know, you can't hang your head on it, go read something else and then come back. Yeah, um, exactly. Some, some people sit on those fantasy uh, chat uh, rooms and they just sit there and just seethe for days and days at a time. So. Yeah. And slag off authors for not getting the books out quickly. Enough. Yeah, exactly. And that, and like, yeah. you think that makes them want to write faster? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, it takes time. I, and I did actually finish this book. I wrote coming out next week about a year ago. So yes, it's um, it's a very very glacial process, the whole thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and that's probably why you know you thought about doing indie because you can release them whenever you want to. Um, and I know some authors. I mean, they'll release one every couple of months. Some will release them if they have the entire series written. They'll. I've seen it done like one month, and then the next month, and the next month. I've seen it done within two to three weeks. So that's one nice thing about indie publishing. But you know, the only thing about it is you've got to do self marketing at that point <laughs> yeah and the, and the flip side of this is that my book's coming out next week because orbit reckon that's when it's best time for it to come out and they know a little bit more about that than i do right so yeah yeah um all right so uh anything else you want to cover anything uh you want people to know as far as you or your books or what you've got coming no, up I don't. I, i'm not very interested in myself um <laughs> and yeah i mean um I'm very chuffed people are reading my books and I'm, you know, going to produce some more. There you go. Um, um, now, can you tell me what, uh, last thing, can you tell me what got you into wanting to write a Western thriller? Uh, I love, I love Western America. I just absolutely, I, I, I used to think Scotland was my sort of spiritual home. I used to get the train up to Scotland and walk around and just go, ah, this feels good. And then I don't know about eight years ago, um, my wife, who I just met, and I did a road trip uh, from San Francisco to Las Vegas via the Rockies. So, you know, quite a lot of driving. Yeah. Um, and I just love the desert. I love the way, I love the landscape stripped bare. I love the huge, great towering rocks. And you can see a lot of wildlife because, um, you know, there isn't any vegetation in the way. And yeah, and I just feel comfortable there. Hang on just a minute. I've got a four year old. Hang on. I'm just interviewing on the phone. I'll, see, I'll be with you in a minute, okay? Um, You're fine. That's right. Um, <laughs> he's a good boy. Um, what was I uh, on about? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so um, yeah, yeah. And I, um, I, my favorite place probably in America is Death Valley. I spent, I spent quite a bit of time there taking photographs and walking around and terrifying myself regularly. And so I want to set a book there. So that's I've set one in a gold mine in Death Valley. Okay. Well, sounds um, fantastic. Right. Good. Yeah, I mean, I, I intended it as a project. I was going to knock out in a couple of months, but I started it in February, and <laughs> I haven't finished the first draft yet. Hey, well, good news is you're still in the months. You haven't hit a year yet. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but you know, I moved back to England. That takes time. Hey, yeah, exactly. Especially from New York. So. Um, yes. Well, great. Well, well, Angus, I uh, do you mean to call you Gus, Angus? Which, Angus which is good. Best? Angus, Angus is good. Is good. Okay. I don't mind too much, but Angus is normal. <laughs> um, and you're David, not David. Yes, David. Yeah. And you can call me David. You can call me whatever you want to. Uh, I think but, I probably feel the same. I'd rather be Angus. You'd rather be David. There you go. Uh, well, Angus, well, uh, I appreciate you coming on. Um, and uh, guys, you can find uh, Angus at GusTWatson.com. You can find him on Twitter at GusWatson. Facebook at angus.watson.96 or Instagram at, at angus underscore Watson underscore novelist. Uh, again, his West of West series finishes up next week uh, with this new novel, Where God's Fear to Go. 
you can actually purchase the first two novels uh, currently, which are uh, You Die When You Die and The Land You Never Leave. Uh, and guys, uh, just look out for more from Angus next year. Uh, and Angus, thank you again so much for coming on. And uh, we're looking forward to more of your stories. Thanks, David. And I'm very chuffed you chose me to interview to give you a second um, edition. So um, thanks very much. I look forward to speaking to you again one day. Absolutely. Have a good one. Thanks. Bye. For those of you who haven't had the opportunity to read You Die When You Die, stay tuned for a clip from the audiobook presented by Hashtag Audio and read it for you by Sean Barrett. I hope you enjoy it. Two weeks before everyone died and the world changed forever, Finboogie the Boggy was fantasizing about Thiri tree legs. He was picking his way between water-stripped logs with a tree stump on one shoulder, heading home along the shore of Olaf's fresh sea. No doubt, he reasoned, Thiri would fall in love with him the moment he presented her with the wonderful artwork he was going to carve from the tree stump. But what would he make? Maybe a raccoon. But how would you go about... His planning was interrupted by a wasp the size of a chipmunk launching from the shingle and making a beeline for his face. The young hard worker yelped, ducked, dropped the stump and spun to face his foe. Man and insect circled each other, crab-wise. The hefty wasp bobbed impossibly in the air. Finbogi fumbled his sacks from its sheath. He flailed with the short sword, but the wasp danced clear of every inept swipe, floating closer and louder. Finbogi threw his blade aside and squatted, flapping his hands above his head. Through his terror, he realized that this maneuver was exactly the same as his rabbit-in-a-tornado impression that could make his young adoptive siblings giggle so much they fell over. Then he noticed he could no longer hear the wasp. He stood. The great lake of Olaf's fresh sea glimmered calmly and expansively to the east. To the west, a stand of trees whispered like gossips who'd witnessed his cowardice in the face of an insect. Behind them, great clouds floated indifferently above lands he'd never seen. The beast itself, surely wasp was insufficient a word for such a creature, was flying southwards like a hurled wooden toy that had forgotten to land along the beach towards hard work. He watched until he could see it no longer, then followed. Finbogi had overheard Thiri Treelegs say she'd be training in the woods to the north of hard work that morning, so he donned his best blue tunic and stripy trousers and headed there in order to accidentally bump into her. All he'd found was the tree stump that he would carve into something wonderful for her and, of course, the sort of wasp that Tor would have battled in a saga. He'd never seen its like before and guessed it had been blown north by the warm winds from the south, which were the latest and most pleasant phenomenon in the recent extraordinary weather. If any of the others, Wolf the Fat, Garth Anvilchin, or, worst of all, Thiri herself, had seen him throw away his sacks and cower like Loki before Odin's wrath, they'd have mocked him mercilessly. Maybe, he thought, he could tell Thiri that he'd killed the wasp, but she'd never believe how big it had been. What he needed to do was kill an animal known for its size and violence. That was it. That's how he'd win her love. 
he would break the Skraling's confinement, venture west, and track down one of the ferocious dagger-toothed cats that the Skraling's banged on about. It would be like Thor and Loki's quest into the land of the giants, except that Finbogi would be brawny Thor and brainy Loki all rolled into one unstoppable hero. The Skraling's were basically their captors, not that any hard worker apart from Finbogi would ever admit that. Olaf the world finder and the hard worker's other ancestors had arrived from the old world five generations before, at the beginning of winter. Within a week the lake had frozen and the unrelenting snow was drifted higher than a long boat's mask. The hard workers had been unable to find food, walk anywhere, or sail on the frozen lake, so they dug into the snowdrifts and waited to die. The local tribe of Skralings, the Goachika, had come to their rescue, but only on two big conditions. One, that the hard workers learn to speak the universal Skraling tongue and forsake their own language, and two, that no hard worker nor their descendants would ever stray further than ten miles in any direction from their landing spot. It had been meant as a temporary fix, but some Skraling god had decreed that Goa continued to venerate and feed the hard workers, and the hard workers were happy to avoid foraging and farming and devote their days to sport, fighting practice, fishing, dancing, art, or whatever else took their fancy.